Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 26th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am privileged to be joined on this episode by J.J. Abrams, the man who is really the toast of the town at the moment because the latest movie that he directed, Star Wars The Force Awakens, just this week became the highest grossing movie of all time. Not only did it make a lot of money, but it also received a lot of acclaim to the extent that the AFI has included it on its list of the 10 best movies of the year, and the Broadcast Film Critics Association, of which I'm a member, chose it as one of its 11 Best Picture nominees. Will the Academy follow suit? We're going to find out soon enough. There's less than 24 hours remaining before Oscar nomination ballots are due. We'll find out who the Academy chose on January 14th. But in the meantime, it's just a treat either way to talk to J.J. Abrams. He's just 49 years old, but it feels like he's been around forever because for over 20 years, he's been churning out great work that people love. First, it was on the small screen with Felicity, Alias, and Lost. Then it was on the big screen with Mission Impossible 3, Super 8, Star Trek, and now Star Wars. There's a reason his admirers include the likes of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and there's a reason that Star Wars The Force Awakens has done as well as it has. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation that I had with J.J. Abrams about his life, career, and latest and perhaps greatest film, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Thank you very much for doing this, and congratulations on a record-breaking week for The Force Awakens. What do you make of it all? Uh, it is uh, a remarkable thing, and I'm incredibly grateful, and it is a testament to how much I think people uh, wanted to go back to a place that uh, means a lot to so many. Yeah. Um, I would like to go back a bit before we focus specifically on Force Wiggins to just talk about some of your history, which people may or may not know, and two nagging questions just to get out of the way up top. What does the JJ stand for, and why is the place that where we're sitting right now uh, – your production company since 2001 called Bad Robot. Uh, it stands for Jeffrey Jacob, and Bad Robot was uh, a title for uh, a, a children's book that I was going to write. And when I did uh, Alias uh, for ABC years ago, I had to turn in a production card at the end of the pilot, and it was the weekend that uh, I had to decide and turn it in. Uh, on that Monday. So I just came up with Bad Robot uh, as the name of the company. I drew and animated the little uh, tag at the end. I had our kids, uh, two of them at the time, uh, record uh, audio just saying Bad Robot together and 
put that on and thought I'll change it later, and, and I just never did. Fantastic. Speaking of kids, what were what kind of a kid were you? Would you uh, categorize yourself as a cool kid? Really sporty, kid? lots of friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I was uh, I, I was a a non athletic um, kid who wasn't a you know particularly great student. And um, when you're not in the library or uh, playing uh, baseball or uh, handball or I guess soccer now uh, at uh, at PE, you know, you don't really have a place to go. And I think that it was that that. Uh, was part of the fuel for falling in love with with movie making because it was something that seemed larger than uh, what was happening in class and and more exciting than what was happening uh, on the the playground and so I would I would make little super eight movies and it was the a bit of a salvation. Where did the tools even to do that come from? Well, my parents had a uh, a little GAF uh, silent. Super 8 camera, and I started using that to make uh, movies uh, and just learning the, the process of, of, at first, just filming something and, and having it developed and watching it and then editing it and then using uh, different uh, different tools for different jobs. Um, my grandfather uh, got me a, a camera of my own. Uh, it was a, a Umig camera, the sound camera, and that was a big deal. And it let me use a, a cable release and actually mount it onto a tripod so I could do animation. And it it was something that had, you know, a couple speeds, but, uh, you know, you could control uh, the aperture, you could control um, the sound. I was able to, you know, use a changing bag and a back winder in order to get dissolves and do things. You could do fades uh, manually. All of which were completely unpredictable, and uh, and usually the results were fairly horrible. But they were different things to try. Of course, now on a laptop, any kid can do, that, yeah. do all this stuff with you know ultimate you know frame accuracy and, and perfect control. But but at the time, you know, getting credits over an image was just you know to say it was imperfect science is being insanely generous. It was just a it was always horrible. But it was a a great hobby. Um, I understand that you were kind of very, very diligent about reading up on the subject and also even reaching out to some of the people who you admired. And um, so I wonder if you could talk about that and also if any of your friends shared this passion of yours. Well, I was, uh, I remember sending things to various uh, filmmakers, including Steven Spielberg, uh, when I was. Uh, nine, I remember I sent him a, a note. Um, I never even told him about this, but I remember sending him a note. Uh, but there were things that, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was, uh, I guess around 15, 14, 15, um, I was uh, sending notes to uh, Dick Smith, a makeup artist uh, that uh, anyone who knows makeup knows Dick Smith, and he was just, you know, one of the great uh you know, sort of founding fathers of, of visual effects makeup and, and did incredible stuff in, in that regard, special effects makeup, mm-hmm. I should say, and, and just amazing work. Uh, obviously, things like, you know, Godfather and uh, Altered States and Scanners and The Exorcist, of course. And um, 
so I, I remember you know sending him notes and he was he was so generous and he would he would respond to every note and uh the very first letter I sent him where I of course asked him multiple questions and was sycophantic and uh, I remember he sent me uh this uh, a tongue from the exorcist that that was uh unused and uh or so he claimed but it was uh the beginning of a a long correspondence and I actually got to go to his house when he was moving from wow. Larchmont New York and uh he gave me a, a, a Douglas Fairbanks Jr. head, which I have upstairs. And, <laughs> you know, he was just an amazingly generous and incredibly sweet guy. He introduced me to Guillermo del Toro, um, you know, now uh, 30 years ago. Wow. Um, but uh, it was, I didn't really have friends who were doing that, but I did when I met uh, a couple years later, I guess I was, you know, I was actually around 15. I met um, Matt Reeves, and he and I were both making uh, very similar uh, themed but very different in execution uh, student films. And he was just someone that, uh, along with Larry Fong, who I'd met earlier, uh, those were two people who, you know, became confidants and uh, kind of my uh, community of people to show things I was working on. They would show me things they were working on, and, and that's a critical component. In light of the the fact that Star Wars is is your most recent film, Force Awakens, I have to ask you uh, if you won't mind revisiting a story that I'm sure you've told more times than you want to get involved with. But uh, about how you and Matt first how how something that happened with you two sort of indirectly led to your involvement all these years later with Star Wars. Mm, yeah, I, I was uh, Matt and I were in a film festival. That was uh, at the New Art Theater. This guy named Gerard Ravel had this film festival that that he put on with a number of um, young filmmakers, student uh, films. And uh, among the filmmakers was uh, Matt and myself and and Larry Fong and Scott Alexander and others. Um, And this this, uh, article in the Los Angeles Times came out, uh, I believe it was the day of the festival, that, that... I think the title of it was just The Beardless Wonders. <laughs> and it was about these filmmakers that, that I guess didn't yet have or couldn't yet grow beards. <laughs> and there was a photograph of, of Matt and myself and Mark Sanderson, this other filmmaker. And um, Anyway, Matt got a call uh, that afternoon from Steven Spielberg's assistant, uh, Kathy Kennedy. <laughs> and she asked if he and I, Matt and I, would be available to repair uh, these student films of Stevens. These were films he'd made when he was a teenager. And, of course, Matt and I were, you know, in disbelief. I mean, it was just, we were just incredulous. Why would she ask us this? Um, Why would she entrust the original and only prints of these uh, student films of Steven Spielberg's to these two, I guess at the time... Uh, Sixteen-year-olds. Mm-hmm. We were sixteen. Um, we still don't understand <laughs> why, but she did, and we took these films and we did repairs on them, and we uh, peeled off every tape splice and re-spliced it. And I remember, it, you know, one of the films, uh, Firelight, <clears throat> said uh, that the title, the credit, said, you know, written and directed by Steve Spielberg, 
And I remember saying to Matt, you know, we should steal one frame. That just <laughs> one frame, and we could like blow it up, and we could have it on our, you know. He's like, no, we can't do that. You know, I was like, oh damn it, you know. So we didn't. Right. But uh, it, it was it was it was a time when there there wasn't access to special features to directors' early work. There was no access to anything except for what the TV gave you or what was at the theater. So for us, it was a window into process and a window into uh, a director uh, who, of course, like uh, all of us, you know, we so admired um, this icon of, of cinema, Steven Spielberg. And there we were, 16 years old, in possession of his student films, which we could look at and say, oh, he was doing what we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was encouraging on a level I can't quite describe. Mm-hmm. It was illuminating. Mm-hmm. It was exciting. And and we made $300. So <laughs> it was a win-win-win. Right. And we gave the, the movies back. And I didn't get to see uh, Meet Kathy or Steven then. But it was years later um, after uh, I'd begun uh, I graduated college and begun mm-hmm. to work as a, a a screenwriter and I was in at the end of the first meeting I had with Steven I was with Joe Mazursky uh, with whom I was writing at the time and after the meeting was over I just said Mr. Spielberg I have to tell you um, you know Matt Reeves and I uh, a number of years ago we and he stopped me and he said no I know you you repaired my movies <laughs> and then he said something which I swear to God I didn't understand at all at the time and and still don't quite but he said Kathy Kennedy calls you her protege and i thought what the hell <laughs> does that mean right why would she ever say that right. i don't even believe she might but why would he the whole thing was so crazy i'm like really and you've never gotten a clarification she does? well i kind of think you know uh, it was it was essentially 30 years later uh, from that first call mm-hmm. to Matt Reeves that Kathy called me and asked me if I wanted to direct Star Wars. <laughs> and uh, if there is any truth to what Steven said and that Kathy sort of felt like she was, you know, helping uh, guide me in some way, uh, I'm nothing but grateful. That's great. Um, one of the things that I've kind of gathered was that even before you mentioned after graduating college, before graduating college, when you were 16, if my information is correct, you had written music for a movie that was made. Then you go off to college and you have a script that gets you have an agent and you have a script that gets bought. I mean, so you were you were a prodigy. But the question that I have is, it sounds like your your father discouraged you from solely focusing on pursuing film, at least in college, to at least, you know, like a lot of people who have this interest, you better cover your bases, is what, what a lot of parents have said. Were you sure that you were going to have a career in film, or, or what was your outlook? Uh, first of all, I was I was hardly a, a prodigy. I was just, uh, I was just obsessed with with filmmaking. I was, I was desperate to be involved in the process in, in any uh, form, um, whether it was, it was directing, whether it was writing, producing, uh, Composing, doing visual effects, doing design. Uh, I I loved the process of making movies, and uh, my father said that he believed it was a better thing to go off to learn what to make movies about than how to make movies. Mm. And I went to a liberal arts college, uh, Sarah Lawrence in New York, and I got to spend a year abroad, uh, my junior year, and it was 
without question, it was an experience had I gone to a local film school in Los Angeles, uh, I, I, you know, I never would have had. Does that mean, you know, I, I would have been less desperate um, or, or more desperate? I don't know. Right, right. But I, writing the, the scripts that I did in college uh, was likely something I would have done kind of anywhere I was. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely good advice for me at the time. Sure. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for it. So a few of your scripts were made into movies um, and and then came, I guess, one of the probably the, the biggest yet, certainly the biggest yet in, with Armageddon. And I just wonder what, as you look back at that experience, you you take away from it. Because on the one hand, I, I think it was a divisive movie, but it was something that was seen by a lot of people. It kind of probably put your name on a lot of radars. Uh, and I just wonder, you know, was that an important step along the way? Well, I think that, you know, the experience of doing Armageddon was interesting for me because it was really the first time I was involved as a script doctor or a, a rewriter. And, and, and I, I I went on to that project. My my agent uh, at the time, David Lawner, said that there was an opportunity uh, at Jerry Bruckheimer's uh, company on this movie they were working on. And I went in to meet and I'd never met Jerry. I'd never met Michael Bay. I, you know, I, uh, it was just... Uh, it was a brand new experience, and it was it was fun to be involved uh, in something that was um, that was happening. Mm-hmm. It was a movie that was shooting. It was a big movie with a lot of moving mm-hmm. pieces. It was it was funny. It was insane. It was hyper real. It was just you know, it was crazy action, and my role in it was. Uh, you know, like many writers on that movie, and there were a number of them, you know, was just to sort of address whatever issues were at the moment, you know, existing for for Michael and, and Jerry. And I, you know, I did the best I could uh, on a movie that was, you know, already in a sense well underway. And, and it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing to get a credit on a big yeah. popcorn movie. Um, uh, but... It was also something that I was, you know, at, at the same time that that was all happening, I was, uh, I was working on this on this show Felicity yeah. that I was doing with Matt Reeves, which was, you know, much more in that moment something that felt uh, important uh, for yeah. us because it was uh, an intimate, sweet, romantic little story, uh, and it was the first time we both of us uh, got involved in television. Sure. Well, and. and- my question there is, but you did a lot of television between Felicity and Alias and eventually Lost. And my, I wonder, do you feel that that experience in any way, you know, helped you to be more prepared when you entered directing of films yourself? Or are they just completely different animals? It, it was as important as anything. I mean, working on Felicity, which Matt Reeves directed uh, the pilot for, he, you know, he helped set the tone. We, of course, cast the show together. But, you know, working on that show, uh, by the time I directed an episode, I did two in a row, I think episodes 12 and 13 of the first season. Mm-hmm. It was with a group of people, a cast that we had come to know and love. It was a, a world that was familiar. It was the, the greatest and safest way to become uh, a, you know, a, a professional DGA-sanctioned director. Mm-hmm. It was the first time it wasn't a student film. And it was it was thrilling and it was incredible fun and uh, you know I got to work with 
uh, Jane Kaczmarek, who is, uh, you know, a friend and a wonderful actress, and she was so great to work with, and obviously Carrie Russell, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, it was an amazing group. And that was, if anything, for me, a kind of confirmation that directing was something I really wanted to get back to because I'd spent most of my uh, short career up to that point writing, mm-hmm. and it was exciting to get to do that again. And so when I wrote the pilot for Alias and gave it to ABC and they said, who do you think should direct it? And I said, I, I think I should. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it when they said, okay. <laughs> I was I was waiting for them to say, you know, uh-huh, but what if, you know, and, and they said yes. And I was, I felt incredibly lucky to get that shot. And the, and the very capable is an understatement job that you did on that is sort of what impressed, as I understand it, Tom Cruise enough to, to seek you out for a, for your film directorial debut, right? We were in prep on Lost when I met with uh, Tom Cruise and, and Steven Spielberg and Paul Wagner about perhaps doing a, uh, writing a script for uh, uh, for War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. and I, I I couldn't do it because I was working on this, this pilot. So we had this great two-hour meeting. I'd never met Tom before. Steve and Apollo were great. Um, you know, the meeting ended. I said goodbye, and I thought, well, there goes my career. I just basically said no to <laughs> Tom Cruise and, and Steve and Apollo. And I went off to work on this pilot, and while we were shooting <clears throat> the Lost pilot in Hawaii, I got a phone call from Tom uh, basically saying he wanted to hang out. And I thought, you know, okay, this is as weird as things get. And went back to L.A., and, and we had, you know... Uh, basically two weeks to edit this two-hour pilot. And we were doing that, and uh, and Tom came by, and we hung out a little bit, and we're talking about what, you know, the third Mission Impossible movie, but in, in no way was it about my being involved as a director. It was just conversations mm-hmm. about what he was planning to do. And it pretty quickly came up that he loved uh, the first two seasons of Alias, and then I received a call from my agent saying, have you heard that Tom wants you to direct <laughs> Mission 3? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, it it started like that. So apart from having a $150 million budget for your first film that you directed, the thing that I find very interesting is that as that first project, you were biting into a franchise that already had a loyal fan base and very uh, vocal, devoted fan base. And finding a way to honor the traditions of it while also adding your own stamp to it. And obviously that's something that's recurred with Star Trek and Star Wars. And so I just wonder if you could almost psychoanalyze yourself. Are you drawn to the challenge of doing that? If they're going to make another Star Wars or if they're going to make another Star Trek, that you, that you should be the guy to do it? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I would argue I'm not the guy to do it, but I would argue I'm uh, I'm drawn to opportunities that feel right, mm-hmm. not to sequels. Um, I never would have thought I would do a sequel. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I always sort of looked down on sequels, and I remember saying, you know, the sequel never equals. It's like it's never good enough, and you know, and I remember being like a, yeah, I, I was I was like you know, uh, I was a snob. <laughs> and then when Tom asked if I was interested in doing Mission. I didn't look at it like Mission Impossible 3. I looked at it like, God, what is what is Ethan Hunt when he's not, you know, being super spy? What is Ethan Hunt as a man 
what is his home life like? What does he fight for? What does he really care about? I, I, I saw an opportunity to tell a story about this character that had been established. And it, it was, of course, for a, you know, a young director who was dying to do you know, a, a movie, it was the opportunity of a lifetime to get to work in a genre that I loved so much that I had created the show, Alias, that was, that was set in the spy espionage world, with an actor that was, at the time, without question, uh, you know, the biggest actor mm-hmm. uh, of all time, um, who, you know, was giving me a chance to direct a movie in a way that I really believed would, I'd have autonomy and protection because he was a producer. Um, and we had a really good time together. And I just felt like, really? This is unbelievable. <laughs> and when they asked me if I was in, in, interested in doing Star Trek, it, I was never a Star Trek fan. And the only reason why I was intrigued was I thought, well, this was a way to find a way to love it the way my friends loved it, the way I knew people loved it. What could Star Trek be? And talking about it with friends like Damon Lindelof and Brian Burke and Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi, who ended up working on the project um, with me, it, it, it was clear that there was so much story to be told in these two people, Kirk and Spock, who were essentially both of them uh, orphans in a way. that They were both these sort of characters without a home and they became a home for each other and they became essentially brothers despite being at odds for much of the story. And we just, we found a way in that it didn't have to be Star Trek, but it it was, and, and while some people would say, well, it wasn't just like the show and it negates everything that came before it. I would say, A, we're not negating anything. We've always, we're very clear, it was a, it was a simultaneous parallel timeline. So everything everyone loves from the original <laughs> Star Trek, we're not saying that's not real anymore, that's not still happening. And secondly, I would say that, that we are embracing, I think, you know, a fundamental piece of, uh, of, of what I think Gene Roddenberry was, was doing so brilliantly when he created it, which was telling a story of unity and uh, of, of adventure and of uh, of relying on on others and uh, to solve problems mm-hmm. that you may not be able to solve yourself. And uh, it is true that our Star Trek movies uh, were more action oriented than they were philosophical. Um, but I'd like to think that those you know our films also had at the core an enormous heart and. They weren't without, uh, you know. I, I think consideration for the 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 tenets that made Star Trek work so powerfully for so many, and because we have people like Bob Orsi and and Alex and Damon who did grow up knowing and caring about Star Trek, I always relied on them to sort of tell me this was passing muster in 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 the world of of, of Trekkies. When Star Wars came up, I was my knee-jerk reaction was no thank you for that the very reason that you raise you know this question i didn't want to be the person that you go to when you want to do a sequel because those two examples i just gave mm-hmm. were both projects that felt that there was a a compelling opportunity to tell a kind of story on a certain kind of stage that i would never have the chance to do again with uh, with star wars it was a, a, something that i'd loved so much since i was 10 years old but so much so that I was uh, I was nervous about taking that on. 
Katie, my wife, and I had made plans to go away with the family. You know, there are all these reasons why it was not the right idea. But then when I sat down with Kathy and, you know, she said, you know, you're my protege. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> but when she said, you know, I think that there's a chance, an opportunity to do something pretty extraordinary here, and we began talking about specifics, I very quickly found myself, uh, as I had with those other projects, drawn to it in a way that um, I could rationalize and explain, but it was really an emotional thing, and it mm-hmm. just felt like the right thing, despite it being a sequel, despite it being inconvenient. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, knowing that George Lucas had taken some flack from his own fan base on, based on the last three, which were a little more divisive, uh, you saw that, and he himself, I think, sort of indicated that that was part of why he, he just, I don't think he was anxious to stick around with, uh, he was more open to selling Lucasfilm. Did that scare you at all of the idea that, you know, if it didn't go right, you've got, you've, you've upset a lot of people? It, it all scared me. I mean, I mean, certainly as a fan of Star Wars, I know what it is to be a vocal, you know, proponent of, uh, or critic of, you know, any aspect of, of what it is. But at every turn, the opportunity to do something uh, meaningful was always greater. Uh, the sort of partners in crime that I had, the people I would get to work with, were always more talented than uh, the risk of, you know, having to suffer slings and arrows. I, I knew that whatever we did, there would be a group of people, and I was just hoping and praying it would be smaller than than not uh that would you know take issue with any number of things mm-hmm. um but I knew we weren't making the movie for you know uh we 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 weren't making it for any other reason than we believed that it could be something meaningful and special and entertaining and uh and worthy of people's time. So when you came aboard, which pieces were already in place and which were not? Because I believe you've said um, that the old guard, Harrison, Carrie, Mark, were already had already agreed to return, which was obviously going to shape things to mm-hmm. a large extent. What what other pieces were already in place or, or were not? When Kathy and I met, she had already brought on uh, Lawrence Kasdan and uh, and Simon Kinberg and Michael Arndt to work as... Uh, as consultants, Michael Arndt being the screenwriter mm-hmm. who would actually write the script, but Larry and Simon would be consultants, and uh, they had already made uh, agreements with the actors to return, 
Um, it was, of course, up to you know the filmmakers to determine if and how they would be used in the in the story. Uh, there was no story. There was no specific plan uh, other than Disney said there was a, a release date of, of May 2015, which once we began working on this thing, realized that was uh, it was it was foolhardy to think that we could ever make it in that time. And so we told Disney that if they wanted this movie uh, from us, this was when we could do it. Mm-hmm. And they agreed. And so we got to keep working on it. But it was um, it was really a, a blank page. And and Kazan, uh, who had not worked on a Star Wars movie in 32 years since Return of the Jedi, it seems like you and he ended up collaborating quite closely on the script. What What do you think he was able to help bring to the table in terms of perspective? Well, you know, Lawrence Kasdan was a name for me that was as sort of uh, awe-inspiring and kind of, you know, triple-A blue chip as it gets. And and I was just excited to meet him uh, and get to collaborate at all with him. I mean, it was, in fact, one of the big draws for me was, you know, not just working with Kathy – or getting to work on Star Wars, uh, and and perhaps if it ever actually happened with this cast, um, but it was the idea of getting to work with someone whose work I have admired for so long, and not just the Star Wars movies and Raiders, but obviously the films that that Larry's written and directed, and mm-hmm. um, uh, or just written. I mean, he's someone I I, uh, I really I revere, and so getting to work with him. And getting to discover that he was as funny and as, uh, you know, opinionated and as patient uh, as he is uh, was a joy. And we would just uh, – he was part of the conversation at the very beginning with Michael. Um, when it became clear about six or so months in that Michael wasn't going to be able to write the script mm-hmm. um, because he needed more time – by quite a bit than we than we had, uh, and Larry and I decided to write together. We basically wiped the slate clean and said, "Okay, look, there are a lot of elements that I love um, that we've been developing, but we need to really give ourselves, you know, just free reign to kind of go any direction. And let's just begin at this is a story about a young woman who, a young man who, and just tell mm-hmm. our, ourselves the story. <clears throat> and we would go on these." miles and miles long walks where we would just record ourselves talking and hypothesizing and and breaking the story and brainstorming. And after weeks of that and then beginning to put cards up on the board and all the things that any of us, you know, ever do when we're writing something, this just happens to be a Star Wars movie. But it was the beginning of, you know, getting to uh, experience one of the most educational and uh, gratifying creative collaborations I've ever had. Wow. At what point along the way did you start to go out and try to find these, the new guard of folks who were going to join this this series? And by the way, I think we should note now they've become movie stars, but they these are all ter- terrific actors. Uh, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Lupita Nyong'o, Adam Driver, and and many of the others. What How did, how did this group come together? Uh, well, even before Larry and I began writing the script together, uh, we were hunting for these actors. Um, 
and Michael and I were still working every day on outlines and we would write uh, scenes for them to do even before there was a script to take scenes from. So the actors would come in and they would read these sides that had been written as sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had amazing casting directors, April Webster and Melissa Weisberg and Nina Gold in the UK working to bring in as many people uh, that seemed to be in the realm. But the the truth is we didn't know exactly what they would look like, what they should look like. Obviously, when you're casting something, and I remember this especially with Lost, such a big cast, it you could find the, the greatest actor ever, but there's still going to be a piece of a larger puzzle. What does that actor look like when she is standing next to, you know, these other actors that you're you're needing for these roles, and, and how does it all work, and, and who makes the cut based on the aggregate? Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, uh, it was the hunt that everyone goes through, but we also knew the burden was multifold. These needed to be actors that could not only, you know, hold themselves, uh, you know, hold the screen with, with Harrison Ford and, and, and hold up this movie and, and let it rest on their shoulders and, and be uh, the true stars of the film because we knew the story was going to be about them. But this was the beginning of at least a new trilogy of stories. These characters needed to be worthy of a longer story, um, of the audience's time, and and they needed to be, you know, in a in a strange way, when you look at the miracle of the casting of the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. and you think, holy crap, you know, they cast those kids when they were, you know, truly little kids, and we watched them grow up, and they became, you know, and and it they made it look so easy. I mean, that is that is just an incredible thing, and and we were doing something that at least aspired to that level of you know, potential and continuum that we needed to have people that, you know, years and years from now will want to watch, mm-hmm. you know, in in these roles. So, you know, I, I hand it to the casting directors for doing an extraordinary job, being as patient as they were. Um, but, you know, we had seen John Boyega in Attack the Block and loved him, and he came in and was great. Um, and we kept bringing him in because there were all these different things we wanted to see from him. Uh, Daisy was someone who came in and blew us away, uh, was just like sunshine and, and was able to do any number of things with a kind of uh, apparent ease that w- was uh, preternatural. And then people like Adam Driver, that was Kathy's idea. It was the first name that ever came up for this role and really the last one uh, that we ever felt was an obvious choice. Mm-hmm. And, and she was, I think, you know, eerily perfectly on target. Um and then people like Donald Gleason and Lupita Nyong'o and you know, Andy Serkis and um, Oscar Isaac, who we love. You know, we just chased these other people down um, because we were familiar with their work. Now, you only ever committed to do one, right? Yes. So when you're scripting the first one, how do how is it decided? Like- oh, I see. Well, in fact, when we were working on it and we started to, we were deep in prep. It was still unclear as to. Uh, who would do and what eight would be. And, you know, I, I did uh, have the option to do it. But I, I realized when I was working on this, the amount of energy that was required to tell the story and do it justice, knowing when episode eight would need to start shooting, there was no 
way <laughs> if I wanted to still have my children talk to me uh, in my old age that doing that would make any sense, nor would it be good for the movie. And if if The Force Awakens worked, it was the, the perfect place to say, I got to make a Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. you know, and not be the greedy bastard. <laughs> uh, if it didn't work, no one would want me doing it anyway. <laughs> so it was the it was the ideal way to, to step down. But I wonder, because it is this large, large universe that is therefore going to continue after after you now, I wonder, um, do you, almost like a relay race, are you having to coordinate in advance where you're leaving it off with oh, yeah. the guy who's picking it up? Like, how does that work? Well, Larry and I had a bunch of thoughts of where certain things could go, and we shared those things with, with Ryan and uh, Johnson, who's directing 8, mm-hmm. and he had things that he came up with where he asked if, if it's possible to make some adjustments in what we were doing at the end, um, most of which we did. There were just a couple that, that didn't feel right, mm-hmm. so he made adjustments. But it was just collaboration. And look, we're all fans and friends and supporters of each other, and there's there's been no one uh, cheerleading and supporting louder and, and more consistently than Ryan on, on this. And... I feel like I, you know, am, am grateful that I get to now take that position for him. Uh, and so it's it's been, you know, something uh, under Kathy's uh, sort of managerial and creative, you know, skill that has gone really smoothly. The keeping of a secret is something you've dealt with before, whether it's lost or other things. I mean, with this one, how... What precautions did you have to take to I make sure? I can't tell you. <laughs> you can't tell me even the precautions. <laughs> that's, that's a top secret. <laughs> okay. Um, no, it, it's it's common sense, and right. and it's also the the luck of having a cast and a crew that appreciate that all we're trying to do is preserve the the fun for the audience, right? So that the experience of going to the movie is hopefully, and we were by the way remarkably uh, able to do that on, on Force Awakens. The idea that certain major story points weren't revealed uh, immediately. It, it did allow for quite a few people to see the movie and and have uh, a sense of discovery. And that was really something we were trying to just preserve as long as we could, knowing, of course, in this age of, <laughs> of information and social media, there was no way that after screening number one, it wasn't going to be, you know, for anyone who cared, uh, right. you know, wildfire and everyone would know. <laughs> um, so I wonder what you've made or how much you even read or, or care about the reactions of the masses, I guess, who have now gone to see this, because it seems to me that the vast majority of people have been very, very positive about the movie for one reason, and or for a number of reasons, but one that I want to ask you, and that the small minority who have had issues with it actually point to the same issue, which is that for both of them, it reminds them a lot of their experience with the original Star Wars. And I want, you know, there's a great cartoon that I'm sure somebody sent you where it was a, a kind of tired older guy going into The Force Awakens. You see it then side by side with the image of the same clothes, but now on a kid where he's, he's, it's made him young again. Um, and that is the experience that I think a lot of people have had. Mm. But then you've always, you're always, as you said, going to have people that, that bitch about something. And in this case, they're saying, well, you know, isn't BB-8 sort of a surrogate for R2? Isn't Maz sort of a surrogate for Yoda? You know, they're, they're, that in some ways it's sort of re- reworking that. What's your take on those on those reactions? I, I respect every reaction, and, and I, I completely see that that 
is a problem for some people. Uh, it was obviously a wildly intentional thing mm-hmm. that we go backwards in some ways to go forwards in the in the important ways. I think, given uh, that this is a genre, that Star Wars is a kind of specific, gorgeous concoction of of George's that combines all sorts of things, but ultimately the structure of Star Wars itself is as classic and and tried and true as you can get. It was itself, you know, derivative of all of these things that George loved so much from the most obvious Flash Gordon and Joseph Campbell, you know, to the Curacao references to Westerns. I mean, all these elements were part of what made Star Wars. And I can understand that someone might say, oh, it's a complete you know, rip-off. We inherited Star Wars. The story of, of history repeating itself was, I believe, an obvious and intentional thing. And the structure of meeting a character who comes from a nowhere desert and discovers that uh, she has a power within her, where the bad guys have a weapon that is destructive but that ends up being destroyed... Those simple tenets are, for me, the by far the least important aspects of this movie, and they provide uh, bones that were well proven long before it was they were used in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. What was important for me was introducing a brand new uh, chapter, brand new characters, using relationships that were embracing the history that we know to tell a story that is that is new, to go backwards, to go forwards. And so I understand that this movie, I would argue much more than the ones that follow, needed to take a couple steps backwards into very familiar terrain and using a structure of nobodies becoming somebodies defeating the baddies, which is, uh, again, I, I would argue you know, not a a brand new concept, admittedly, but use that to do, I think, a far more important thing, which introduce this young woman who's a character we have not seen before, who has a story we have not seen before, Uh, meeting the first stormtrooper we've ever seen who we get to know as a human being, to see the two of them have an adventure in a way that no one has had yet with Han Solo, uh, to see those characters go to find someone who is a brand new character who, yes, may be diminutive, but is as far from Yoda as I think (laughs) a description of a character can get, um, who gets to enlighten almost the way a, a wonderful older teacher or grandparent or great aunt might, you know, something, uh, that is confirming a kind of, uh, belief system that is rejected by the main character. Um, and to tell a story of, of being a parent and being a child and the struggles that uh, that you know uh, entails. And clearly, Star Wars has always been a familial uh, uh, story, but never in the way that, that we've told here. Mm-hmm. And yes, they, they destroy a, a weapon at the end of this movie, but then something else happens, uh, which is, I think, far more critical and far more important. And in fact, even in that moment when that is happening... Uh, the thing I think the audience is focused on and cares more about is not, is that big planet going to blow up? Because um, we all know it's going to blow up. <laughs> what you're really caring about is what's going to happen in that forest between these two characters who are now alone. So I think by the end of the movie, when you've met, you know, Ray and Finn and Poe, and 
you've met Kylo Ren and you've seen Hux and you've seen Snoke and you've met Maz. These are all new characters doing things that we haven't seen before. Um, and it's almost like the flesh and the blood uh, and, you know, the the hair and the clothes and everything. It's like, yes, the bones of the thing we always knew would be a genre uh, comfort zone. But what the thing looks like, you know, we all have a skeleton that looks somewhat similar, but none of us look the same. And And it was, to me, the important thing was not... You know, what are the bones of this thing? To me, it was meeting new characters who discover themselves that they are in a universe that is spiritual, that is optimistic, and in a world where you will meet people that will become your family. Last two things, if I may. Just first of all, uh, when you have a project, the way that people respond to it, how much does that affect the way you feel about it? Because on the one hand, with your television work, Lost had great ratings, right? And I think that Alias didn't always, and yet they're both terrific, and I think you probably hold them similarly like siblings in in your regard. So it didn't, the fact that one was more popular than the other, did that impact your opinion? I mean, if Star Wars had come out and not become the most successful movie of all time, would you feel any differently about it? For three years, I had people asking how I'm dealing with all the pressure. And it's a long time to have that question come at you. And then especially towards the end, um, it seemed to increase every minute that got closer to the the, the film's release. And it was, uh, <clears throat> it was, it got to a point where I thought, okay, I, I think I'm going to have to have a heart attack because literally <laughs> I'm being asked this question so many times. The only possible answer is for me to implode. And uh, the relief that I feel now that the movie's out and that uh, it, it didn't, it didn't just crash and burn is uh, is is enormous. I I don't think that um, uh, you know it, it would have been after three years and certainly not just of my work but of the incredible work that this cast and crew uh, did on this movie and you know the hair and makeup and the set design and the the construction and the lighting of the movie and the costumes of the film and the visual effects and the special effects and the practical things, the actors that... I mean, I, 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 there isn't a direction to look at from, you know, John Williams' music and the sound design. I mean, everywhere I looked, I was watching people who were the best in what they do, doing the best they've ever done again and again and again and again. If the movie had been ripped to shreds or or not seen by people or or it, I would have been miserable for everyone and and I'm sure I would have been miserable for myself as well but I really I know how hard it would have been you know for me because of what I saw uh, every day mm-hmm. and um but I think that the, the the truth is that I knew that my wife loved the movie and every day that someone was asking me how am I doing with the pressure or I would hear projections of numbers that, of what the movie would do that I knew it could never do or any of these things. I literally would just think, Katie likes it. <laughs> and there was something about knowing that Katie liked it that I just thought, I've got a suit of armor. It doesn't matter. Like, if the movie is... Because she's as brutal as, as it gets <laughs> in terms of honesty and taste right. and, and, you know, not that she's right, but I when she's right, it matters to me. And so... It was a, a little bit of a, of a, for me, it was a way of, of not being immune to the bad reviews. And every time I read one, I go, yeah, you know, 
she's got a point or he's got a point. I, I, I really do get it mm-hmm. when someone has problems with it because you, you, when someone argues something well, you see their point of view, you know. Um, but that helped me feel like, you know, I know what we all did and I'm proud to be associated with it. Sure. And and as a final question now, I think everybody's curious because you have established you're not going to do another Star Wars. And I think the there had been some interview somewhere where you said you'd like to do a smaller scale kind of like a original concept project. I don't know if that's – just curious what's next and does this actually take pressure off for going – I hate to come back to pressure, but yeah. you know, looking ahead to the future, is it easier or harder? I mean I remember I think Lucas wanted to do small movies too afterwards and it's it, – only so many he's been able to do. What do you hope to do going I mean, forward? If I ever said I wanted to do something smaller after, um, I, I don't remember saying it. But I, I'm sure you're right. But uh, the joke is, you know, I don't know how you do something bigger, meaning <laughs> the scale of this movie, for me at least, was so uh, enormous and so uh, demanding on so many, literally thousands of people uh, that. I don't know, you know, anything I do next is going to be, you know, a, a small project in comparison, <laughs> I think. Um, I, I don't have any idea uh, yet of what my next project will be, but I uh, I, I haven't, since I think Felicity, um, before Felicity, I don't think I've been in a moment where I haven't been in, in prep on something, casting something, rewriting something, getting ready to shoot um, – so I'm I'm in this moment where I feel like I'm getting to do something that is uh, in, entirely uh, uh, alien to me, which is just be home for dinner every night <laughs> and to you know take the kids to school every day and to just be a human being. And I, I I'm looking to kind of get filled up by you know reading and writing and exploring and doing music and working on various, you know, silly projects that, that are just kind of things that will, I know, lead to that next thing as it always does uh, on some level. But I, I don't know what what my next project is. I, I, I'm still feeling uh, a, a little bit like I'm, I'm coming down from the <laughs> sort of magnitude of working on this thing that uh, I, I got reminded every day by someone, uh, you know, that it, it should have made me crazy with pressure, but it, I didn't quite realize it until after it was, it was out. Well, I'm one of the many people who loved it, so thank you for the movie, well, and thank, thank you. you for doing this. And that was my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, me too. Thank you so much. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.